All right, we're live. All right, everybody. Um, first, I'd like to thank our last guest, Dr. Michael Nusiselli, uh, who is a psychologist in Internet Issues. We had a good conversation, but today I have a good news. I have a very good guest. My guest today is a social activist and a renowned author of almost 11 books. Jeff Raisley lives on the White River in Indianapolis, right, with Alicia and Bandit. His first public writing was Melishonic Adolescence Poetry, in the Hanover College Fine Arts. He has uh, written over 40, uh, over 80 feature articles on law. He has traveled the world, believe it or not. I'm jealous of that, that he found so much. That he's been to the Caribbean, he's been to the Tango, to the Greek islands. He's been all over. So I'd like to welcome my guests. Welcome to the uh, podcast, uh, Jeff. How are you today? Thank you, Omar. Good to be with you. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you, you came here. Um, I don't know how we're going to start this. I usually start this uh, with, uh, um, I always ask my guests, um, who are they as a human being to start the conversation? Hmm. Well, uh, when uh, here, uh, you know, we tend to, to when uh, we greet somebody, you know, what do you do? We always say, uh, you know, what do you do? Right. So uh, I practiced law for 30 years. Right. Uh, but I have been out of law for uh, almost 10 years now. And like you said, I've traveled the world. I've led uh, trekking and mountaineering expeditions in the Nepal Himalayas. That's come to a, at least a temporary end because of COVID. But uh, I run a, uh, a foundation over in Nepal called the Basa Village Foundation. Right. I've written now... 13 books. My 13th was just published. Uh, and I teach a class on philanthropy at Butler University. Right. So um, I found it uh, interesting to... Uh, do, I have, do we have any... Uh, I think we're getting feedback. Uh, I found it interesting in one of your books. I want to start to talk about it. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I only, uh, only uh, read... Uh, I mean, listened to half of it. It's called The Extensional Crisis... The existential American crisis, right? Is that it? On Audible. Uh, yeah, America's existential crisis, our inherited obligation to Native nations. How did you come up on that subject, I mean? Well, uh, it really started when uh, I traveled uh, to the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre and, and out in uh, South Dakota okay. and uh, drove around uh, the Pine Ridge uh, Reservation, and I was really startled to see the level of poverty here in the United States. Uh, in some ways, the conditions were even worse than what I've experienced uh, in very poor villages in Nepal. Um, and it turns out that I have a historical link in my family history to the massacre of Wounded Knee, which is some people consider the, the worst massacre in US military history, because one of my ancestors was a lieutenant uh, in charge of a troop of soldiers who were involved in that massacre. So that sort of that connection uh, inspired me to visit the area of Wounded Knee um, and then it be, I began to think about comparing 
uh, the legacy of that ancestor to another ancestor uh, who had passed down five generations to me uh, a, a really a beautiful beaded vest that was given to him by Potawatomi Indians in northern Indiana, where my family were really pioneers because of how he helped them survive uh, a terrible winter that uh, uh, many of the Potawatomi were starving. And he owned a, a store and he gave them uh, needed supplies and loaned them needed supplies. And they were so grateful they gave him this beautiful beaded vest, which is on the cover of the book. Yeah. And eventually it was handed down to me. Okay. Uh, can you give us an idea of these tribes? They, they lived around the Dakota, right? The, the Southern Dakota uh, plain? Yeah, right? the, the Sioux, uh, the Sioux Nation yeah. uh, is in South Dakota still. Um, they were originally, uh, I mean, they were nomadic tribes, uh, but their their home region was the Black Hills of South Dakota. But they were forced onto a reservation in an area called the Badlands. And the reason it's called the Badlands is because it's so inhospitable. Uh, you can't really grow crops there. And so the, this very proud uh, people of Native Americans, um, after eventually being defeated in war, were yeah. penned up into this area where, you know, many of them starved. Okay, but these uh, tribes, were, were they uh, war, war tribes? Like, were they uh, tribes of war, like the other the Iraqis that we learn in history? I mean, did they, did they fight amongst each other? They, yeah, they did, although um, two of the major tribes in that area, uh, the Sioux uh, and uh, the Cherokee, uh, I'm sorry, the Cheyenne united uh, to fight the U.S. Army, and they and they did so successfully for a number of years. But eventually, sort of tribal disputes um, yeah. broke their alliance, and um, and then they were uh, defeated by the U the Seventh U.S. Cavalry, which was what my ancestor was a, a lieutenant in. Okay, some will say that uh, the Indians were a free-range people who followed their food security, the buffaloes, from valley to valley, from place to place, instead of domestic, domestic, domestication. Their animals on farm the land. And this lifestyle stood in the way of an emergent power that wanted to assert its sovereignty throughout the, uh, 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 from, from the Pacific to the, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Were they in a way of some sort, or were they their own enemies? Was they not? They didn't domesticate their, their, their animals, and they did not farm lands like other uh, people. Well, they had uh, a very sustainable way of life, and, mm -hmm. and yeah, the buffalo was their main source of food, um, clothing, uh, t the teepee tents. Uh, almost every aspect of their life was based on the buffalo. But they hunted buffalo in a sustainable way. Um, but what really was the the uh, sort of tipping point that sent the Americans in uh, to drive them out of the Black Hills yeah. was gold was discovered in the Black Hills. Yeah. And so then the the sort of the military industrial complex of the United States 
uh, decided that uh, we wanted to take over that area and the Intercontinental Railroad was being built. And so, uh, it, you know, the American uh, political and commercial establishment didn't want to worry about rate, having the railroads raided uh, by Indians. And also they didn't want the Indians to get in the way of gold mining. So, right. that, so they pushed them out of the Black Hills and into the Badlands. What is the, um, you can hear me great, right? The mic is good. You can hear me? Yes. Okay. I'm glad. Well, what is the 1830 Indian Removal uh, Act? Uh, I mean, the, 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 what is the, the, uh, yeah, the 1830 Indian Removal Act and how did it come to be? Yeah, in 1830, the President of the United States was uh, Andrew Jackson. Right. And Andrew Jackson was a war hero because he uh, helped defeat the British in the War of 1812. And he was a very popular leader by several elements of the population. Right. Uh, he wasn't very popular with sort of the old uh, Eastern establishment types, but he was very popular among the pioneers, the frontiersmen, uh, the farmers, ranchers, the people wanting to push further and further west. Right. And so uh, he got Congress to pass uh, in 1830 what was yeah. called the Removal Act, which gave uh, the U.S. government the authority to use whatever force was necessary to move Indians, any Indians, east of the Mississippi to reservations west of the Mississippi. And eventually the Removal Act basically was used to, um, you know, to move Indians out of any territory within the U.S. to some territory that the U.S., either the government or commercial uh, interests, didn't care about. What was this operation that, when we learned the, the, the Trail of Tears? Is that it? Yes. When a lot, uh, could you go? Could you elaborate what what what, is, what happened at the Trail of Tears? Yeah, and I'm I'm actually even much more familiar with what's called the Trail of Death, which I yeah. relate in the book. But the trail and they're similar in the sense that in the Trail of Tears uh, originated in uh, the southeastern U.S. and was a forced march uh, all across uh, the Appalachian area. Uh, the lower Midwest uh, into Oklahoma territory on the other side of the Mississippi. Uh, the Trail of Death, which I uh, relayed in the book, uh, started in northern Indiana, where my family were uh, pioneer settlers, uh, and it was the Potawatomi tribe. And there really wasn't the pressing need to move the Potawatomi out in the sense there, was, there wasn't gold in northern Indiana. The railroad um, wasn't coming through at that point. Um, it was really more just a land grab. Um, the, it, it, the Potawatomi were not um, nomadic. They were actually an agrarian-based tribe, so they farmed and they hunted and they trapped uh, along a couple rivers in that area. Um, but so anyway, the, some of the local people decided they wanted to kick them out, right. uh, and got the militia and, uh, U.S. Army to force march them a thousand miles, uh, into 
again, the Oklahoma Territory, and many people died along the way. Um, and, you know, it was just one of those were sort of the two of the most famous uh, trails were forced marching uh, Indians, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles into a territory that they had never even been in before. There's a lot of death, right? The death could be in a thousand because it was during winter and uh, the children died. You know, I didn't study that until college. It's unbelievable. They never taught us that in high school, junior high school, uh, until they got into college. And I didn't understand it at that time either. I didn't know that the feeling. But a lot of a lot of Indians lost their lives while they were being marched forcibly by the United States Army to a different land they didn't even know. Can that that's, be said? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that the legal authority yeah. um, was this 1830 Removal Act. Yeah. Can, can, uh, can Andrew Jackson uh, Operation Trail of Tears? Trail of Tears be considered a war crime in our international law of this day? Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think it would definitely be considered a war crime under the Geneva Convention now. Um, it, you know, I mean, it, it involved civilians. Uh, it, it wasn't really a military action in the sense that the in, in most cases uh, there was either little or no resistance because by the time um, these tribes were being forced marched across the country, they'd already been militarily defeated. Yeah. Uh, so many many of the victims were women, children, old men. At that time when, uh, I don't know, I'm getting this feedback, I hope it doesn't mess up. At that time when we were, the, when you had the, the Indian Removal Act, the United States was going through a political turmoil with a free state uh, red state was coming into uh, 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 into the scene where it would lead to the civil war. So the United States had two issues: it had the slave sin, and the Indian uh, genocide continue of of the natives uh, in this country. Are those two sins uh, alike, or are they different? I don't know. How, I don't know how to say it. I see. I mean, how can you explain that time or the thinking of the U.S. government? Yeah, I mean, those are the two sort of great stains yeah. on the soul of America are the, you know, the sins of our ancestors. Yeah. And, you know, the, they're, they're both economically related in right. the sense that slavery was what supported the cotton industry right. in the South and right. the removal of the uh, Native Americans was generally because people wanted their land to either farm or mine or put a railroad across. So there's, it seems like there is always uh, a commercial motive underlying both of those uh, historical sins. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Did the native Indians, were they ever enslaved or they were never enslaved by our ancestors or by forefathers or by our countrymen? Yeah, no, not not in the way that Africans were. Right. So they never saw them as slaves or for labor, free labor, and things of that nature, right? That's right. So uh, the, what we see in the history of uh, the Native Indian it was a continued crime of, of a century or so, uh, decade after decade, uh, and it was pushed by the greed for land, where you wanted to push, you could down push in. Um, 
Then you mentioned there's a massacre of uh, Wounded Knee, I think it's 1890. I'm sorry to jump 50, 60 years, but it gives you an idea how we treated these human beings. Well, what was the, the uh, I know your family member was in that, uh, uh, was a leader or was part of the the the, the Calvary, the 7th Calvary. What, what, what was the incident of Wounded Knee? Yeah, and it's considered really the end of all Native American resistance. Right. And you're right, it, it actually happened on December 29, 1890. Yeah. And it, uh, it, in a way, like, you know, so many historical events, it was sort of a combination of uh, planning, uh, luck or bad luck, and uh, just coincidence, because there, there had developed this a movement among the uh, Native Americans who were already on reservations called ghost dancing. Yeah. And ghost dancing was uh, a way of expressing uh, sort of a, a, an artistic way of expressing the angst of the loss of freedom, loss of way of life. But it was, it was interpreted um, as and, and, it, and it was. I mean, this this interpretation was to some extent correct. A way of organizing and inciting um, young men to resist uh, being held on reservations. And so, as this movement spread among different tribes around the Dakota area, uh, the the army became more and more concerned about that. And so this one particular tribe, because the, the Sioux Nation uh, was made up of uh, numerous tribes that were all Sioux, um, but, but so this one called the Minikanju uh, left its reservation and because there were 350 men, women, children who were going to go to another, meet with another tribe on a different reservation and engage in a ghost dance. Well, Turns out the host tribe decided to call it off, um, probably out of fear of repercussions from uh, the U.S. government. So the Minikanju got there, turned around, and were heading back to their own reservation when the 7th Cavalry intercepted them and you know, declared, you're in violation of the reservation treaty. Um, and so at first it seemed like there was going to be a peaceful settlement. Uh, the, uh, the leader of the Minikanju, the, um, the tribal chief, a guy named um, Bigfoot, that's what the, the Americans called him, um, was a, a peaceful guy. He was also very sick and uh, he put a white flag up on his wagon. He, he couldn't even walk. He had to be uh, transported in a wagon and negotiated what both sides thought was an agreement that the Minikanju would peacefully return to the reservation. Well, the, a different um, military commander came onto the scene and he des- decided that the Minikanju had to be disarmed and ordered the 7th Cavalry Troopers to take away not just their guns, but their knives, their hatchets, 
anything that could be used as a weapon. Well, at first the Minakanju cooperated, but eventually they began to realize if we don't have anything, how will we be able to survive? We won't be able to hunt. Uh, you know, we won't be able to cut down trees. Uh, our, you know, our lives will be in jeopardy. So they started to resist uh, giving up all, all, all their weapons. And um, a shot was fired. Uh, historians to this day are not sure who fired that first shot. But once that shot was fired, then shooting broke out on both sides. And of course, the 7th Cavalry far outgunned uh, the Minakanju because at that point, many of them had been disarmed. And the 7th Cavalry had two um, Gatling guns. They're called Hotchkiss guns, but like, you know, repeating similar to, you know, the first sort of machine guns. So they basically mowed down most of the Minakanju. Some escaped on horseback, uh, but most of them were killed. And there were a few um, 7th Cavalry men that were killed as well. So it wasn't completely one-sided. The 7th Cavalry considered it a battle, and they claimed that uh, it was a, an Indian who fired the first shot, um, which might be true, but they were so far outgunned, yeah. you know, it was going to be a massacre if fighting actually broke out. And the 7th Cavalry apparently was quite willing to just shoot everybody they could rather than trying to, you know, just shoot anyone who was resisting because women and children were also killed. What, what was the population of these two uh, tribes at that time? I mean, numbers, did they number in the tens of thousands or the low, or, or lower thousands? Yeah, well, the Minakanju, just that tribe, that was it. The 350 people were the, yeah, was the total population of that tribe. So it, it was virtually wiped out. Uh, the Sioux Nation was several thousand. I can't give you an exact number, but all of the combined tribes would have been a few thousand. When was the, re the reservation uh, system implanted or started? Well, it yeah, it started after the 1830 Removal Act because uh, you know they weren't the idea that, that they didn't want to, the government didn't want to seem completely inhumane and just drive people off their land, drive them across the Mississippi River, and say, "Okay, you're on your own." And in uh, many cases, they th there were actually government agents who were there to help set up the reservation to help create new housing and basic infrastructure. And in other cases, there weren't. Um, so like the Potawatomi from northern Indiana, they were told that there would be housing uh, infrastructure all developed and waiting for them in Oklahoma. But when they got there, there was nothing. And so they had, you know, they were on bare ground and they had to you know, built their own homes, developed their own water system and everything, you know, all the basic infrastructure. So it's sort of how each reservation got started really varied from, you know, one extreme of agents who were really, you know, had humanitarian um, 
impulses and wanted to help these people to agents who were really corrupt and who lied and cheated the Indians. Can, can we say that, uh, oh my gosh, can we say that the Indian reservations were a form of internment camps, maybe, or concentration camps, or? Yeah, I would say so, because yeah. it was, you know, forcing people into a particular area that right. they didn't consider, you know, their land, and they were not allowed to leave. It, it was, you were committing a crime if you yeah. left the re reservation. Why did we observe them into the mainstream? I mean, it was an issue with the Indians don't want to be observed to the mainstream America, like, I mean, introduce them to cities and jobs and economic, you know, just bring them into the cities and mix with the, with the populations. I mean, we were able to assimilate Europeans and people from all over Europe. I mean, why couldn't, you, why couldn't we assimilate the, the native Indians into our, our country? Well, eventually, that was actually the policy that developed. Yeah. Uh, in the the near the very end uh, of the 19th century, early 20th century, sort of the more enlightened thinkers uh, in in the U.S. decided that what we need to do is to uh, integrate the Indians into the majority culture. But the way they went about it was turned into just another form of cruelty. Because they would take uh, Indian children off the reservations, in many cases, without permission of their parents, just took them and yeah. put them in boarding schools, yeah. made them cut their traditional long hair, made them dress uh, their tradition, uh, wouldn't let them dress in their traditional dress, uh, prohibited them from using their native language, mm -hmm. and tried to turn them into Christians and to turn them into Americans who would uh, have low end sort of low skill jobs. So the, the kind of skills they were being taught at these boarding schools was basic reading, writing and arithmetic and low level trade skills so that they basically they were being trained to work in factories. Because we just saw some reports uh, at the tragedy of such practices in Canada where they found a lot of bodies that were buried in, in mass graves under the schools or where they were. Because there was no oversight. These kids were either abused physically or mentally or maybe, I don't know, sexually, whatever. But uh, uh, did you read about it, the Canadian thing about uh, these schools or forced Indians to become part of the Canadian uh, culture? Yeah, it happened in the U.S. as as much as it did in Canada. Uh, both countries had the same policies and procedures as far as the uh, Indian um, boarding schools. Um, yeah, there's a, a chapter in the book that addresses that uh, because as I was writing this book was when those first news stories broke. Uh, so I, you know, quickly did some research and incorporated. Um, the the history of that into the book. Why do you think these reservations have become an epic center uh, for alcoholism and drug use and destitute uh, uh, lively lives in these uh, reservations? Why has it attracted such uh, uh, destructive behavior? Because the people are defeated and depressed, yeah. and they're 
economic condition is poverty. So if you're born into poverty and that's all you see, um, what are you gonna what are you gonna turn to 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 escape it? Well, you know, you could leave the reservation because uh, since the uh, 1930s, uh, the policy change and uh, Indians were allowed to leave reservations pretty much at will. Um, but you'd be leaving behind your people, your community, your culture, and uh, and and you haven't had a good education. So your ability to fit into mainstream society in a productive, satisfying way, uh, you know, chances are not good. So an easier way to escape is into alcohol or drugs. The, the problem I see with uh, with the Indians, they're so attached to the to the to the cultures and to their reservations, and able to leave it and just go to New York and become just a New Yorker, while people came from Europe and the Middle East and all over the world and were willing to cut the line between their their past and just embrace this new world. So uh, are the Indians damned uh, because they can't uh, leave that the, the ancestral land or the obligation to it? Yeah, well, now uh, about half of Native Americans live off of reservations. Right. So there's been a, you know, for the last oh, uh, hundred years, well, not quite a hundred years, um, more like about the last seventy years, there has been a, you know, a slow but uh, increasing number of Indians who have left the reservation. And many of them have become very, you know, productive citizens and have uh, uh, successful lives uh, and have, you know, achieved uh, economic uh, and social success. But the and some of the reservations also, particularly in the Southwest, uh, that have very successful casinos, um, their economies have really have been lifted. Um, but so the reservations, which are in areas like uh, in South Dakota, where there's not a lot of tourism uh, to support casinos, and there there's virtually no agriculture, and there hasn't been a very successful effort to develop any industry within the reservations, you know, that's where these pockets of extreme poverty still exist. Would you take that um, these rich uh, tribes that have made a lot of money, like, like here in upstate New York, I think uh, the Fox and whatever they're called, why, why wouldn't they pick up the, 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 the burden of helping their poor uh, brethren where they don't have such luck to, to open casinos? Well, the, of course, the, the success of the casinos is pretty recent. Um, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you exactly, you know, when the first casino opened. Um, but I think it's really only been, you know, the last 20, 30 years. So there hasn't really been, you know, much more than one generation uh, that's benefited. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know, but I would guess that some of the wealthier tribes 
probably are helping other tribes. Like there's an organization um, that connected with me because of this book called Partners with Native Americans. And it's a foundation that works with different tribes to support infrastructure development, particularly educational um, improvement. And it's a cross-tribal um, organization. So, yeah, what, I mean, what you suggested is happening, but it's, you know, it's very recent. Uh, I want to go back to uh, how come the, the U.S. government, instead of giving them the, all these patches of land all over the United States and calling them sovereign, why don't we just give them a state? We have 50 states. Some of these states are not even populated, like Wyoming, like Montana, like this. Do we really need two Dakotas? I mean, we could give them one and kept one. And I gave them their own country. I mean, uh, was that uh, not uh, <laughs> realistically? <laughs> well, actually, that was sort of the plan because Oklahoma yeah. is where uh, many of these tribes were being relocated to. But uh, again, eventually, people, um, pioneers yeah. wanted to go to Oklahoma. Oil was right. discovered in Oklahoma. Yeah. And so it was just, you know, they just got pushed further west. And then California gold was discovered in California. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it, you know, eventually you're at the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> There's right. no, no further, you can't go any further west. So they were just left with these little pockets all over the Western United States and there are reservations in the Eastern United States that were established um, before the removal act or where it was just easier to leave the Indians in small pockets that were, uh, you know, the majority of Americans didn't care about. Uh, some people, uh, some historian or some activists right now, they classified achievement of the native Indians in whole as a genocide. Would you, would you call it a genocide? Yeah, I would. Um, I mean, you know, I, I guess it depends, depends on how you define the term. But if you think of it this way, um, before the arrival of Europeans, um, the native Americans occupied 100% of North America. Right. Uh, now they occupy about two and a half percent. There was a 90% decrease in their population. There were about 50 million Native Americans back in 1492, the year before Columbus arrived. Now there's about 5 million. So, uh, and then you, you consider uh, what caused that depopulation and what caused the loss of land. And it was mostly done at the point of a gun. So seems like that qualifies as genocide. Uh, are those stories true? You know, we used to talk about it. Uh, well, some people talk about it, that um, the settlers used to give the, the Indians uh, 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 blankets or, or Closed our uh, infected, what well, I don't know, chicken pox or I don't know what uh, the diseases that they had uh, because the natives were not they know what these diseases were. Is that is that is there a factor that or just this is this talk? It it happened one time. 
yeah. yeah. There were blankets that were infected with smallpox and okay. were given to one particular tribe. So it did happen once, but it's sort of, you know, been exaggerated. I mean, it's been made out to be like it happened to all the tribes, and that's not true. I think Native Indians died because the immune system was not familiar with the diseases that were coming from Europe. They were isolated in this world. They didn't have the, the bacteria, the defenses that we built, uh, you know, as a as human being. And I think the majority died from disease and the gun uh, of uh, the new settlers. We could agree on that? Yeah. No, no, you're right. Uh, starvation and yeah. disease um, killed more Native Americans than, yeah. you know, guns. Yeah. Because sometimes, but, you know, I, go ahead, go ahead, elaborate. Yeah, I was just going to say, but, you know, sort of the... I mean, the end result is they died and they were driven off their land. Yeah. And whether it was accidental, like in most cases, you know, the disease was was not intentional. But, you know, you're right. They their immune system didn't have the resistance to diseases that Europeans had developed uh, resistance to. So that killed Native Americans. Um but then uh, many starved during the military actions when they were surrounded, cut off from their food supply or cut off from the buffalo. And then, of course, during the forced marches. Right. So, I mean, um, excuse me. So uh, are there any successful uh, uh, tribes that succeeded and overcame all these obstacles and still until today and still live in the original land they had? There, yeah, there are um, some, a, a couple, a uh, few tribes in uh, northeastern, in sort of the New England area, small numbers. Um, also uh, in Florida, uh, the tribe, and uh, this is terrible, uh, yeah. uh, shoot. Uh, the name of the tribe is just slipping my mind for Isn't some reason. Seminole, Seminole, something like Se that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, Seminoles were never actually uh, defeated in the sense of a surrender or a treaty. And so there are still uh, a fair number of Seminoles in Florida. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the numbers are, are fairly small. Uh, where the, where there has been um, economic success in recent years um, ha has uh, really come about uh, either because of like what we talked about before casinos where their a tourism industry has developed or um, there have been some uh, successful startup businesses I describe one uh, one in particular in the book, which is uh, coffee. Uh, so uh, in Seattle, Washington, uh, a Native American woman started out with just one coffee shop and she began to expand and as she expanded her business. She introduced a number of uh, Native tribes to growing coffee beans. And so now her suppliers are different uh, native tribes. And so that, you know, there's a, a success story. And I think the importance of that story 
is that here was a particular Native American who recognized how she could use uh, the capitalist system of the majority culture, became an entre a successful entrepreneur, but then benefited other Native Americans by bringing them into a growing business and expanding so that, you know, expanding not just selling uh, coffee in coffee shops, but growing the coffee, distributing coffee, and so forth. You know, our, our federal government pours billions and billions of dollars to foreign countries, to foreign lands. Why can't they pour these billions of dollars to these reservations and try to bring these people over to right the wrong that we did or bring them up to date? In, uh, because I saw they, they, sometimes the reservation on TV, they're like desoluted. They have no, 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 no street signs. They have no infrastructure. It's like an old Western uh, uh, movie. I mean, why can we do that? I mean. Well, for the very first time, uh, and one of what I think is the great things the Biden administration has done that's gotten very little attention right. is it, in the American Rescue Act, which was passed, it was that first big infrastructure uh, bill, right. it included $32 billion uh, for uh, Native American projects. Right. and. The project, and I actually I go through this in the book. Um, the projects cover all sorts of basic infrastructure, education, yeah. um, language training. It's it's the largest amount of money in the history of uh, U.S. Native relations. Um, so it's if you do the math, it works out to be about $8,000 per Native American. Um, so if you think about that in those terms, it isn't a lot of money in the sense that, you know, maybe you could take one semester at a state university for $8,000. But if the, if the investments are made wisely and they develop businesses and they develop schools and adequate infrastructure, um, for all the native communities that don't have that, it's a huge step forward. I mean, it's the biggest step forward in doing exactly what you just suggested that we has ever been taken. Right. Um, sorry. Uh, does do they do the native Indians hold these uh, uh, idea that they are really sovereign nations, holy to themselves, holy? Or can they be incorporated into a state and become part of the state economy and benefit like everybody else from states, uh, taxes and things and projects? Or are not, they're not willing to, to part away with that word uh, sovereign nation? Yeah, it's kind of, well, I would say most Native Americans want to hold on to the sense of being a sovereign nation. Yeah. But we've developed a very sort of strange legal structure around that because on the one hand within a reservation there's um at least the larger ones have their own native police force yeah. but the federal government not the state government but the federal government still retains uh jurisdiction sort of over and above what right. the the native legal system has right. um, 
So, you know, uh, for example, if, um, if a Native American is arrested for a crime and the crime occurs uh, anywhere within an area that was covered by a treaty, even if it's off of a reservation and the treaty was violated, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that that Native American cannot be tried in state court, but must be tried in federal court if, it, if it's off the reservation, can be tried under tribal law on the reservation. And, and that this came about, and, and I mention uh, this case in the book, it's kind of a weird situation. Um, Eastern Oklahoma, the half of that entire state was supposed to be reserved uh, for the Cherokee Nation. Um, it wasn't. Uh, mm -hmm. it, you know, bits and pieces of it are, but the vast majority of the land became the state of Oklahoma, uh, including Tulsa, you know, a big city. But uh, so a guy gets arrested uh, for armed, I think it was armed robbery, uh, right. is tried in state court. He appeals on the grounds that even though he wasn't on the reservation, he was in eastern Oklahoma where there was an actual treaty that gave that land to the Cherokee, uh, and he was Cherokee. And so the U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled that his conviction uh, under the state criminal code uh, was overturned and he'd have to be tried in federal court. Okay, before we move on, let me just put the picture of the book on the screen. Okay, this is the book. It's called American Existential Crisis by Jeff Resley, right? That's how you pronounce your name? Resley. Resley. It's, nice, it's a beautiful book. I only even have to it. I don't know. Cause I didn't have time. I'll be honest. I fell asleep when I was listening to it at nighttime. But this is the book. Anyway, I, I just want you to, uh, before I, I moved into a, a small next subject, you know, about now. Give me the correlation between the two individuals from your family. There was a, a man who was uh, who, who contributed to the massacre of the Indians. What did the other person do? What was his name? Valentine? What was his name? Uh, his name was Valentine Berkey. Yeah. Uh, and he owned uh, a lot of timberland and a sawmill, and he was a partner in a hardware store. Right. And so the the story that's been handed down through my family is that his hardware store, um, many of his customers were Potawatomi who had either survived the trail of death and came back right. uh, into northern Indiana uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, or had managed to escape when uh, the Indians were being rounded up. Uh, and so there was a, a, you know, a number of Indians in the area that became his customers, became friends of his. And so he, you know, he helped them out on this one particular very harsh winter. So to close on this subject, uh, the Native Americans were decimated for two purposes, land and resources. We could agree on that, right? Right. Exactly, right? Okay, uh, I want to move on now to modern time. Do you think right now we are, uh, we are 
like the native Indians, we are tribe, politically tribal, <laughs> tribal at this moment in our history. You know, <laughs> as Americans right now, we are politically tribalists, and everyone has his own group, everybody has his own gang. Are we almost the same like the native Indians in the beginning? I mean, it, 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 yeah. Um. Well, I actually, <laughs> I wrote a book, another, yeah. a, a book uh, back in 2017, um, inspired by the partisanship and the polarization of uh, the 2016 election. Yeah. And I went back and looked through the history of the United States about different eras of polarization and what caused it and, and how does our current era compare to that. and there's a number of metrics you can use to measure polarization. And we, at this point, are more polarized than any other time since the Civil War. So only during the Civil War were Americans more polarized than they are now. Um, and so if you, it, you know, when you say tribes, it kind of depends on what you mean, because the we are clearly polarized around Donald Trump. Right. That people are either sort of fanatical followers and believers in him, or they absolutely hate him. Uh, it's kind of one or the other, very in extreme. Um, the other way that we're polarized is geographic. If you look at a map, and for in that that book uh, that I wrote has this map in it uh, of uh, county by county or voting district by voting district where where the majority Republican or is it majority Democrat? It's almost a perfect match with rural areas are all Republican, urban areas are all Democrat. And so there is a very clear geographic polarization in this country, as well as the what's become this pro-Trump, anti-Trump polarization. You, you know, this is my personal feeling. When I when I hear the red state, blue state, red state, blue state, uh, it's kind of remnants of the free state, uh, uh, slave state era, where it led to the uh, to the civil war. Could we be heading towards that right now? Because the, we're so divided as states uh, against each other. Yeah, um, I, it, to me, it's uh, it's a horrifying thought and yeah. one that seems unlikely. Yeah. But these uh, these radical right wing uh, militant groups—that's exactly what they want. Like. You know the the oath keepers, where yeah. the leadership was just indicted because of the January sixth insurrection. Um, that's what they they believe that they are starting and trying to inspire a civil war, and they think that's what this country needs. Oh, that's ugly. You know, I, I had some guests here before you um, who believe in an ethno state uh, white country. They want their own part of the country. Then I, I, the more I talked to him and debated him, it didn't make no sense because I said you cannot build a state based on the pigmentation of a skin. States are built on religion or, or ideology or things of that nature. Then you can have this purity uh, contest. Are the Northern Europeans more white? Are the Southern Europeans? It, it's not going to end. So um, these people who are romancing this idea of a civil war, they don't know how devastating it's going to get 
for a country as big as ours uh, with ethnicities and religious belief. A failed state is an ugly thing. I'm from the Middle East. I already saw like Lebanon, Yemen. When, you get, when, when the state fails, it's neighbor against neighbor, region against region, mountains. Are, it's an ugly sight, and I don't know why this romance, they have this romance about it. How, how can we... Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a form of mental illness. Yeah. Uh, I, I really do. Uh, I... Uh, lived through in a way a civil war myself because i was visiting nepal regularly while their civil war was going on and um comparing what that country was like before it started uh the first time i was there in 1995 Mm -hmm. the country was in a national mourning because a tourist had been killed in a bar fight by a nepali so this is right. one person killed. The entire nation was upset about it, yeah. was in a state of mourning. A few years later, after the Civil War broke out, people were being killed every single day. Uh, you know, no big deal. I mean, it was just the sort of the whole, the culture, uh, the humaneness of that nation changed dramatically because of the Civil War. Uh, I- has our uh, global uh, uh, treaties, like uh, in commerce, has decimated a certain region of our country, the Midwest and the Rust Belt, where they closed all these factories, they were forgotten for not two decades, and the opioid crisis came in. These people feel like they own something or they have been forgotten. All Trump has to do is like the same factory guy who took the, all the snakes from the uh, uh, Ireland with, with the flute. All he had to do was just scream, and they all came out from all over the place. Because they've been forgotten. They don't vote. They're not. They're in the village, in their towns, uh, facing alcoholism, drug use, uh, broken families, uh, uh, lost uh, of the idea of being part of a nation. Uh, their job, that's what it is, to earn a living and, and provide for your family. Do you think we we, 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 uh, we, we uh, um, added to that or we created that as, as a country? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the collapse of the steel and auto industries um, back in the 80s really sort of set the stage for that. I mean, and a lot of, you know, people often think of, when they think of the collapse of the steel and auto industries um, back in the 80s, they think of around South Chicago and Detroit, big cities. The reality was there were small factories all over the Midwest that supplied the parts you know, maybe the the major, the the big, the body or the chassis um, was made in in Detroit or the steel in South Chicago. But um, like my uh, hometown, Goshen, Indiana, in northern Indiana, when I was a kid, we had um, about five different small factories that were parts factories, right. uh, just supplied you know like one little part. Um, but would employ, you know, 30, 40, 50 people. But then those factories all started closing and those people all lost their jobs. And that happened all across the Midwest. And, you know, the big factories closed down too. um, But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just the big auto plants. Yeah, but you see the difference in certain areas of the country. People move to a different thing or move to a different city to learn new uh, uh, jobs. 
But uh, uh, these uh, uh, people in the Midwest, they just stood in their towns as if the factory is going to come back or they're going to fly out of the sky and did not want to uh, uh, move out. You know, they've been living there for, for, for decades, of hundred years. How do we make that region whole again as a country to prevent this uh, uh, division we have? How do we make these people whole? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, the, the way you put it really <laughs> reminded me of a, a parallel with the Native American reservations. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the why the coal miners in West Virginia, the coal industry has been shrinking for generations. Why do these people stay there? Yeah. Um, I've met people from West Virginia who call themselves coal miners, and they might have worked in the mine decades ago. Or their father, grandfather worked in the mine. They didn't even work in the mine, but they think of themselves because you know it's their culture. Uh, uh, and the same is true of a lot of these small towns uh, in the Midwest. You know, they you figure you know you go to high school, you graduate, you get a job in the same factory uh, right. your dad or your mom or both right. worked in. And so, uh, <laughs> one interesting case. I'm very familiar with uh, because when I first graduated from law school, I worked in uh, what's called legal services organization for a couple of years outside of Indianapolis in this uh, small city called Anderson. Anderson had two great big auto parts plants. Most of the people who lived in Anderson were employed in or somehow were related to one of those two factories. Well, they closed. Um, and, and a fair number of those people moved from Anderson down to Texas because jobs in the oil industry were opening up in the 80s as jobs in steel and auto were closing. So yeah. some of them moved down. Well, within a few years, the oil industry tanked, uh, right. and then those people were now in Texas. Some of them came back to Anderson. But so there was this sort of whipsaw effect uh, okay if we leave look what happened to these people who left right. uh, they're, they're even worse off than we are because at least we've been you know managed to hang on to our little bungalow house or whatever so it's but yeah i mean the the point is really the same as with res the reservations there has to be uh economic development and there has to be education that matches uh the you know the job the jobs and education need to match up and oftentimes they don't oh actually do you have time to, to talk a little longer or are your time uh, uh i i need to break off in about five minutes okay okay one more question just i'm gonna go out of it okay i had a lot of questions for you because <laughs> i mean i you have such a body of work i, I don't know what it is now i don't know which one to pick um you know that like you mentioned the coal mine, the coal mines uh, jobs in West Virginia. There's only twelve thousand uh, coal miners. We had uh, uh, Amazon. They wanted to do a factory here in New York and Queens and bring fifty thousand jobs. We refused it. And I said, why can't Amazon go to West Virginia and give these twelve thousand people the jobs and get them out of the other uh, the black the black lung disease they live in and, and that dirty making living and they could make sixteen twenty thousand an hour? Do you think they should do that or? Yeah, um, there's, I, I mean, I, I'm no expert on yeah. the situation in West Virginia, yeah. but 
just following the news uh, and what I know by from anecdotal information is that uh, there have been a lot of efforts to retrain and re-educate coal miners, and many of them have failed because those people just refuse to give up. Right. They're, they have this ridiculous, irrational, optimistic yeah. view that coal is going to come back. And, you know, not only is it probably wouldn't, but we don't want it to. I mean, coal is the most polluting form of energy yeah. we have. And, you know, we don't we want we want to eliminate it. Uh, you know, we don't want, we don't want to burn more coal. Uh, so those people just absolutely need to be retrained, reeducated, and get into a new line of work. But a, a lot of them are refusing. And uh, yeah, you know, the problem is if your educational system is not very good, and you've grown up with, you know, and your schooling wasn't very good, and now you have to learn new skills you're kind of intimidated by it. Okay, Jeff, um, do, you wanna, do you have a closing statement? Do you want to tell people where they could find you or name the books? You have a lot of books. Uh, you have a whole library of books that you have written. Uh, you have a rich history of volunteerism. Do, do you want to do a closing and tell our audience where they could find you or anything? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Omar. Um, I have a website. It's my just my full name, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Raisley, R-A-S-L-E-Y. So they can Google my name and find my website. Um, all my books are on the website and uh, the Basa, excuse me, the Basa Village Foundation uh, link is there as well. And also, if anybody's interested in uh, trekking or mountaineering in Nepal, if this pandemic will ever end, <laughs> uh, hope to pick that up again. Um, but it's been. Yeah, wonderful talking with you. The the other book we we mentioned, I'll just give it a plug. Yeah, it's called Polarized: yeah. A Case for Civil Discourse yeah. uh, During the Time of Trump. Um, and so it was you know, recognizing how polarized we are and how we've gotten to this place, but what we can do to try to turn that around. Uh, okay, uh, Jeff. I would love to have you back and we could discuss this book again, the other book, maybe in a couple of months or whatever. I want to thank you kindly for answering our invitation and coming here and enriching us with your, uh, uh, with your knowledge of history. I want to thank you. And, I, I, and you can come anytime you want. You have my email. And God bless, I guess, until we meet next time. Well, thank, again, thank you. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, and I, I do hope we'll get to talk again. So thank you, Omar. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. There you have it. Uh, uh, a man who's written more books than I have <laughs> read in my whole life. He, he taught us about the history of the Native Indians. We enjoyed his, uh, we enjoyed his company, and hopefully we'll have him back again. Until we meet next time, this is Omar. Thank you very much, and God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Take care.